All right, good morning. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 4? Yesterday, God willing, the meteor doesn't hit the building, we should finish our study in Paul's letter to the Philippians where we have been looking at its theme, which is joy, topically. And building what's going to wind up being seven topics uh, around the theme of joy. We've already seen joy in fellowship. Joy in proclaiming the gospel, joy of faith, joy in unity, joy in service, joy in the Lord. And the seventh and final one in our series, the series we're calling A Journey in Joy Through Philippians. So pray about next week what we're going to do. The seventh one, though, is joy in giving. Now, we started this a couple weeks ago. So I'd like you to, to look at verses 10 through 20. I'm not going to read all those verses, but really those are the verses that go back and read in their entirety, but I, this morning I want to focus, uh, start with verse 10. So Paul said, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Verse 15, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you send aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So as we've already said, Paul is thanking them for the generous gifts of money that uh, the church in Philippi had sent to him for his ministry. And, uh, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about giving. And tells us that, it, that if it's done with the right heart, it brings great blessings. Great blessings. Guys, I believe where God guides, he provides. So I never feel the need to pressure people to give to the work of God. I believe that God's a big enough God, he can take care of his own work. I mean, if he needs to provide for it, he'll do that. He doesn't need me getting up here and twisting arms to give to the work of God. God's not a pauper. God doesn't need our money. He allows us to give it, then he returns to us many blessings because we give. We'll talk about that more uh, in a moment. But uh, I don't want to ever present God or give people the impression that God needs our money. He doesn't need anything. He is self-sufficient. He can do whatever he wants, and he provides for all he does. But so because of it, I've, I've always taken the position when it comes to teaching on giving. It's simple. As we work our way verse by verse through various books in the Bible, if we come to a section where giving is talked about, I'll talk about it. Otherwise, I really won't bring it up usually. Now, because of that, I probably have robbed some of you from blessings. Because I've been so kind of low-key with regard to the subject of giving, and I've done it for a lot of reasons we talked about last week. I don't want to be associated with hucksters on TV and radio that are always begging for money. In other reasons. But because I haven't made an emphasis on money, really, as we get to a 
passage that teaches on it, I'll teach on it. Otherwise, I, I'll, I won't bring it up. And I think maybe that's cheated some of you out of some blessings. Um, so I'm going to try to rectify that through these studies on giving a little bit. But um, l- let me just say this. Um, giving is a very important subject in the Bible. We- we've talked about that. I've downplayed it, but really, it's a very important subject in the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say on the subject of giving. In fact, Larry Burkett, who was with the Lord, but when Larry was alive, was an author, of course, a Christian, and a financial expert. And he said that the subject of giving, stewardship, and other financially related topics occupy some of the largest number of verses in the Bible. It's a big, it's a big topic. And as I said last week, Giving to God is a subject that permeates the Bible from cover to cover and is tied to the blessings of God both in heaven someday but also on earth right now, not the least of which being great joy, if it's done the right way and from the right heart. And we'll talk about that more in a second. But as we said last time, the Bible likens giving to God to the sowing of seeds in a field, which will result in a threefold harvest of blessings. And we looked at the first one last week. The first harvest of blessings is it blesses God. It blesses God. Here in Philippians 4, verse 18, Paul is writing the Philippians, again, to thank them in part for the gift of money they had given to him. And in so doing, he calls it a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Guys, look, and I'm just reviewing quickly from last week. Giving someone a gift of money to help them in a time of need or to support a work of God they're involved in, that blesses the heart of God. It blesses the heart of God. Don't forget that giving to God and the proper handling of money is not only a part of Christian stewardship, it's also a part of Christian worship. Christian worship. Even as Paul tells us in Philippians 4 verse 18, it becomes an acceptable sacrifice which ascends to his throne like a sweet-smelling aroma and becomes to him the fragrance of worship. As we said last week, that idea that you offer God a sacrifice in the Old Testament and it ascended to his throne like a sweet-smelling aroma, that was the language of worship. The Old Testament sacrificial system was all about worshiping God by bringing him animals and different things and so on. Um, So Paul is saying that the gifts of giving they gave gave to his ministry for the work of God were a sweet-smelling aroma to God, the fragrance of worship. Now, we talked about that last time, so check out last week's message if you weren't here. So first of all, blesses God. Secondly, it yields a harvest of blessings to people. It blesses people. Look at verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. For what? For your generosity. Verse 16. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent aid more than once when I was in need. Giving to others in need reflects a love of reflects a love for God and for those made in his image that goes beyond mere words and feelings. It's great to say you love people. It's great to have feelings of love for people. But you really manifest how much you love them, and if your love is real, by a tangible expression of that love, which is helping them in a time of need. Talk is cheap, right? 
And the idea is that when we give to somebody who is in need, well, we're expressing the love of God towards them. You know, God expressed his, the ultimate form of love for the human race when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But then Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back to the Father, and the Spirit has come and has filled his church, his body on the earth. And we continue ministering to people in this world. We continue to show the love of God to the folks of this, of humanity by, by reaching out to them in time of need, helping them. We have the resources where we can uh, buy them some food or help them with a house payment if they're out of work and so on. That is just an expression of a tangible expression of God's love for people, people that are living in a lost and hurting world, right? Warren Worsby said, and I quote, if we give ourselves to God, we will have little problem, problem giving our substance to God. If we give ourselves to God, we will also give of ourselves for others. It is impossible to love God and ignore the needs of your neighbor, end quote. And then didn't John say that? How can we say we love God whom we have not seen if we don't love our brother whom we have seen, right? So guys, giving must be done purely out of a love for God. That's bottom line. It must be done purely out of a love for God, and then it must be done out of a desire to help people, but only as God leads. Just because somebody has a need doesn't mean that's God's way of saying you automatically have to satisfy that need. Sometimes God is working in a person's life. Sometimes he's withholding blessings or withholding an answer to prayer because he wants to break them. First of all, he may want to save them. Or if they're a Christian and they're backslidden, he's trying to reach them. And here we are, oh, he has a need, or she has a need. And we rush in to meet that need. And we are putting ourselves between God and that person. And God does not want us to get in the way when he is dealing with somebody. That's a very dangerous place to be in. Why? Because he'll take your blessings away if you use them in the wrong way to help somebody he's working on trying to break. You got to pray got to pray. Let me stop here for a minute, guys, and provide a little background. Paul talks about giving in numerous places in the New Testament. Philippians 4 is one of those. But one of the great passages uh, is in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And he really hits it hard there. Why does he do that? Well, I'm going to give you a little background uh, as to why Paul gets into the subject of giving so intensely in those chapters one of the main reasons for paul's third missionary journey was to take up an offering a relief collection from the gentile churches to help the jewish christians living in and around jerusalem you see the church there was suffering financial hardships for several reasons first of all many new converts that had gotten saved on pentecost acts 2 had stayed in Jerusalem to be discipled. This was a unique situation. The church was just born. People that were in, the, in uh, Jerusalem and around its suburbs, there for the Feast of Pentecost, all of a sudden, they get saved now, right? There's no church to go back to. Many of them have traveled miles and miles to come to Jerusalem for this feast. Pentecost was one of the three major Jewish feasts of the year. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. In fact, it was, they were so pivotal, if you were a Jew 
that live within 20 miles of Jerusalem on those three feasts, you are required, mandated by Jewish law, to be in Jerusalem for these feasts. Now, if you were outside, uh, far enough outside the area, uh, often people would travel mi hundreds of miles to come to Jerusalem for one of these feasts. And so a lot of pilgrims did that on Pentecost, and they heard the gospel preached. Uh, you know, I mean, Peter preached the first spirit-filled message of the church age. He gives an altar call, and what, 3,000 men plus women and children get saved? Now where do they go? They need to be discipled. There's no church to send them back to, so they stuck around. They hung out there in Jerusalem because they needed to be discipled. Well, that put a, quite a, a, a burden on the uh, church there. I mean, these folks had no homes, no jobs. Um, and so the church fed them and housed them. Christians all over the area opened up their homes, shared their resources with these people. It created a hardship. Resources were stretched. People could only do so much and so on. That was the first reason for this financial suffering. Number two, the second reason for the poverty the church in Jerusalem was experiencing was due to persecution. To persecution. Look, many of these new converts were Jewish. That's why they were in town for the Feast of Pentecost. That was a Jewish feast, right? And so most of these new converts were Jewish. And if you understand the Jewish culture a little bit, you will realize that even to this day, if an Orthodox Jew converts to Christianity or some other religion, but let's just use Christianity, their family actually throws a funeral for them. They're, they're dead to the family. Your family ostracizes you. The whole Jewish community where you had a job, where you had a business maybe, you were ostracized. You lost everything. All because you were now a follower of Jesus Christ. And so that put a tremendous strain on uh, these people. They were considered all traitors and turned coast of Judaism. And so they were dealing with financial hardships. And the church rushed in to meet these financial hardships and so on. Number three, the third reason was heavy taxation by Rome which resulted in rampant unemployment and poverty in the region. So on top of everything else, Rome slaps them with more taxes. Okay? We can all thank our government for knowing just when to sock it to us even more. It kicks you when you're down, right? Um, so that was the third reason. And the fourth reason was on top of all of that, there was a famine in the area. A famine had hit the area. Now the Jewish Christians tried to do all they could do to help the poor in the area. Even as we read in Acts 2, verses 44 and 5, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Verse 32, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So what they did was they just opened their houses, they opened their wallets, so to speak, and they were just sharing their resources, the food, whatever food, clothing, a shelter they had, because um, they wanted to meet these needs. But eventually, the resources ran out, and all the Christians living in the area began to feel the effects and the pain of these extreme conditions they were living under. Now, guys, Paul not only saw this offering as a way to meet physical needs in the name of Christian love, that's true, 
But even more importantly, he saw it as an opportunity for the Gentile churches to show their appreciation to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem for sending them the missionaries, by sending them out missionaries to evangelize the Gentiles with the gospel. In Paul's epistle, you will remember how he often says to uh, the Gentiles how that they owed a tremendous debt to Jews, not just saved Jews, yes, because of what we're talking about, but Jews in general. You say, well, why? Because it was the Jewish people that God first called to be his chosen people. He entrusted them with his word, the law. And over the centuries, they kept it, and they treasured it, and they copied it, and they made sure it was passed down from one generation to the next. Until finally, it got into the hands of the Gentiles. And we are right here this morning, recipients of all that faithful preserving of God's word. So Paul says, we owe them a great, the Gentiles owe the Jews a great debt. But especially in the context of what we're talking about, you Gentile Christians, they owe a great debt to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Because yeah, the church started there, they got saved first, and then they sent out missionaries. They financed missionaries. Paul and Barnabas were two, Silas and Saul, and Paul later on another two, that went later. Um, they were funded by the, by the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and around that area to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul says, you know, we need to do something, you Gentile churches. You know, Paul said in Ephesians 2 that God has broken down the middle wall of partition that separated Jews, Jews and Gentiles and made them one new man in Christ. Now, theologically, that's absolutely true. But practically, things don't always work out the way they are, what the truth is theologically. So you had, you had Gentile churches and you had the Jewish Christian churches. And Paul didn't like that. He loved to see Jews and Gentiles worshiping in the same churches. And so he figured, what a great way to bridge the gap and finally make what is true theologically true practically by making Jew and Gentile one new man in Christ. He wanted that unity, right? Now, guys, as we said a few minutes ago, the Bible likens giving giving to God to the sowing of seeds in the field. And if given out of the right heart and for the right reasons, it will result in a threefold harvest of blessings. It will, first of all, bless God. Secondly, it will bless people, people made in his image. And number three, it will bless, guess what? Me, you, the giver. Look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you sending me that gift. I didn't ask you for it, and um, I didn't seek it, but I thank you for it. He said, I didn't seek the gift, but I, I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. I'm more blessed that you guys are getting rewarded for this. That's where my heart really is. Turn to Acts 20. In Acts 20, Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders. He's on his way to, to uh, Jerusalem. I think he was to keep the Feast of Passover in this situation. But he doesn't know if it's going to wind up, he's going to wind up paying for this journey with his life. Uh, prophets are telling him, don't go, don't go. Uh, they're going to, they're gonna, you know, they're going to arrest you and imprison you and so on. Um, but Paul really feels in his heart, this is of God. But because he's not sure how it's going to wind up, as they um, made um, a port in uh, Miletus, which I think was about 30 miles from Ephesus. Now, Paul spent 
the most of his time in Ephesus. Uh, of all the places he stopped and spent uh, time there, it was he spent three years in Ephesus, year and a half in Corinth, and other places. But three years in Ephesus, he really knew these people. He was close to these elders. And so when they, when they made port there in Miletus, he sent some guys to get the elders from Ephesus, the church there, and they come to Paul. And he addresses them one last time. And you can read the address uh, by yourself or on your own. I think chapter 20, verse 17, it starts roughly. And I want to pick it up in verse 32. Is he's kind of bringing this to a close now, this last exhortation to these men. He said in verse 32, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that with these hands, my own hands, I have provided not only for my necessities, he says, but for those who are with me who couldn't work, is the idea. Verse 35, I have, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There's great joy in giving. There's great joy in giving. And I have known people that were givers. They just, that was their ministry. They just gave. Some of the most joyful people you ever want to meet. You want to re meet some really miserable people? Do you know any wealthy people? Oh, sure, they have stuff. And they numb the pain by going places all the time. But often it's some of the most miserable people you're ever going to run into. Look, as I just said a moment ago, giving to others in need goes beyond mere words and makes our giving a tangible expression of God's love to this lost and hurting world. But guys, our giving also becomes an expression of faith. Sure, it helps people, but it also becomes an expression of faith as we give to God and have faith that he's going to provide our needs. We talked about this last week. So there are people that really can't afford to give to God. When I say give to God, I mean people or, or their church. But they do it anyways. And often they give above what they need to, you know. In America, we don't, most people don't give so much they don't have food on the table. It might be, though. But often they do without a luxury. They don't go to the, to the show, and that's probably a good thing. But they don't go out to eat as much. Maybe they don't buy themselves a new outfit once in a while like they would. They, they, they give sacrificially. They're denying themselves something to give to the work of God. And again, sometimes God laid on their hearts to give him a sizable amount of money, that paycheck, because somebody needs help. They've got cancer, as we said last week, and uh, that has uh, drained their resources. And you find out about it, and God lays it in your heart to give them your whole check this week. My whole check, Lord? That's right. And you give it out of faith that he's going to take care of us. What a great lesson, lesson in faith that is. So giving not only just demonstrates God's love to people, it also is an expression of my faith in him. Okay, he's going to provide my needs. He even said this to Israel. You don't have to turn to it. You know it. Malachi 3, verse 10. I'll read it to you at the NIV. Where God said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, into my temple. 
that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. The only time God ever said test me. Now I know we're not to put God to a foolish test. But this is not a foolish test. And the only time he ever said test me is right here in Malachi 3 verse 10. Bring the tithes into my storehouse. That the storehouse, storehouses in my temple will be full. And test me in this, says the Lord. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing upon you that there will not be enough room to store it all. Wow. Guys, it's clear from both the Old and New Testaments that God blesses us financially as we give or as we bless others in need. Now look, that should never be our motivation for giving. I'm going to give because I want God to give me back, you know. Hundredfold, that's the thing, right? Which is a misinterpretation of that passage. But the idea is that if I'm giving to God, I'm not giving, I'm investing. We talked about if we give to God out of the right heart and motives, we'll be blessed. So a lot of giving is done today because of people on TV and radio that are encouraging false motivations in giving and all. They're not being blessed. They're not being blessed. But, but Jesus did promise us blessing. And many, much of that would be financial if we gave to others. You remember what he said in Luke 6, 38? Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together. Uh, pressed down, shaken together to make more and more room, running over and poured into your lap the amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Look, we are promised by God that if we use our resources on earth to build his kingdom and help to help others in need, we are sowing seeds that will produce a great harvest of blessings both now and forever for us personally. Turn to Proverbs 11. I'm going to read verses 24 and 5. Where the writer says, there is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Let me read it to you the NLT. Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper, and though... Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Now, it's hard to teach something like this because the subject has been so tainted by word of faith teachers that you're almost accused immediately of being a word of faith teacher if you talk about the blessings associated to giving to the work of God or the or to people in need, right? Um, again, we have to give out of the right heart with the right motives. And giving so that I can get is not really the right motives. I give to God because I love him. He's been so good to me and to my family. I, I just, and, and I, I'm a cheerful giver in the sense, I think it's hilarious that I get to take what I cannot keep to invest in what I cannot lose. That is proper investing when I'm investing in the things of heaven. But so many people have taken this whole subject and it's not that they don't have a biblical point. Two people can do the exact same thing. Give to God. 
One person does it with the right heart, God loves it, blessed by it, and accepts it. The other person does it out of selfish motivation, and God rejects it, and they get no reward for it. Motive is everything. Motive is everything. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 9. And while you're doing that, let me just read one more proverb. Proverbs 22, verse 9. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. Again, the Bible is full of promises that, or admonitions that when you use your resources to help others in need, God's going to bless you in return. He's going to bless you in return. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. But, I, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let me read that out of the NLT. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each make up your own mind as to how much you should give. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves the, God loves the person who gives cheerfully. And again, Paul uses a farming metaphor here, that in farming, if you only, you only reap in proportion to how much you sow, in the sense that I can't take five or six seeds and throw it into a field an acre big and expect to harvest the whole field. You're only going to get a small yield for the small investment of, or the small uh, amount of seeds you, you um, put into that field. And again, when Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, obviously he's applying that principle to giving, to giving. And what he's essentially saying is we can't outgive God. We can't out In fact, God says he's not going to be any man's debtor. So when you give to God out of the right heart, he is going to respond by blessing you abundantly. Much of that will be in heaven waiting for you when you get there, sometimes on the earth. But you can't outgive God. What Paul is saying is that if you give it to God with the right heart, he'll take it, multiply it, and use it for the work of his kingdom. And in return, he will give, he will give to you a great blessing. Uh, and part of that blessing includes joy. That'll be our reward, our harvest, okay? A good example of this principle, giving God a little bit because it's all you got and seeing what he can do with it. Classic example of this was that little boy. Remember when Jesus preached? I think it was the Sermon on the Mount. And they were there for like three days. And at one point, um, disciples came to Jesus. And said, you got to send them away so they can go out and buy food for themselves. I mean, they've been here three days and... And some of them are going to faint along the way. And Jesus, well, just why don't you feed them? Why don't we feed them? We don't have the money to feed all these people. We, we, even if we had 200 denarii, we couldn't even buy all of them a crumb or two. But we do have a little boy here who's come up with his sack lunch. He's offering his, us his sack lunch. Now, can I just say, and I've said this before, be careful with movies that have a biblical theme to them. Often they're produced, well, they're getting better now because they're being produced by Christian production companies. Uh, but even those are not completely trustworthy. 
But in the old days where Hollywood produced any biblical movie, uh, movies, it was, they, be, be careful, okay? And I, I saw one one time of this very thing where this kid brought his sack lunch to Jesus and uh, five loaves and two fish. And Jesus prayed over it, blessed it, and then they began to pour out onto the ground where people were taking food. These one-pound loaves of bread, the, cir the circular loaves, and these fish, uncooked, raw fish, two or three pounds, bass flopping around. Folks, this was a sack lunch. Five barley crackers. Barley was the poor man's grain. Five barley crackers and a couple of small pickled fish to just wipe a little bit of the fish on the cracker to moisten it. A couple of sardines. That wasn't much. It's all he had. He offered it to Jesus, and Jesus blessed it, multiplied it, and used it to feed thousands of men, women, and children, 20,000 or more. And the Bible says they ate and were glutted. Glutted. Can I stop here and, and, and say something? The Bible is clear that God only wants us to give to him out of what we have, out of what we have. And I say that because there's a lot of people that are encouraging Christians to go into debt to give to God. Those in the Word of Faith movement teach that even if you don't have any money, borrow it. Put it on your credit card. Because God's going to give you a hundredfold in return. You can pay it back then. But whatever you have to do, get the money one way or another, and then you can invest it in your seed faith offering. In other words, yeah, whatever money says, it's a seed you're planting. It's going to yield a hundredfold in return. Look, that's wrong. That's not biblical. We don't give to God what we don't have. We give to God what we do have. This little boy didn't have much, but he gave it freely, and Jesus used it powerfully. And that's the thing for what? What can I give to you? How can I serve God? What talents do I have? I don't know what talents you have, but I'm telling you, he can use those talents. I was watching a video years ago about a, um, a church, and this was made up of a young pastor whose dad was a pretty well-known speaker, and um, they had a new person visit the church. And... Um, so they get the names and, and all, and so they called the, they called the new people, and they invited this guy over to the house. It was a, his father and his son. Invited them over to the house, and in the course of conference, and they always said, well, what do you, what do you have a passion for? What, do, what are your interests? And the guy said, well, I have a passion for barefoot skiing. <laughs> barefoot skiing? Yeah, I really love barefoot skiing. And I, I, I teach people how to barefoot skate. Really? Okay. Well, they eventually put him in charge of a ministry of barefoot skiing. <laughs> the pastor said, you can't believe the interest and the turnout. How God used this crazy thing. People were coming and they were hearing the gospel and they were getting saved and they were being discipled. All because of barefoot skiing. So look, I don't know what it is that you're good at, you know. Uh, even if you think it's insignificant, God can use it. If you give it with a willing heart, a willing heart, right? But guys, as we said last week, one of the principles of sowing is you will reap more than you sow. 
more than you sow. In other words, if you plant one apple seed, you're going to get a whole apple tree containing many apples, each having many seeds. You plant one grain of wheat, a wheat it bears a stalk of wheat that contains many grains of wheat. With that principle in mind, remember that the harvest we will reap in heaven will far exceed what we have sown on the earth. What do I mean? On the earth, you can serve God, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years, more, maybe a little more. You sow into the kingdom for those years. You serve the Lord. In heaven, you're going to reap an eternal harvest of blessing. Now, that works in reverse, too. The person who refuses to yield their life to the Lord, who refuses to die to self, that they might be, give themselves over to the work of God, how, how many years can they enjoy sin? Even if they live to be 100, they will reap an eternity of punishment and hell. So it's very good for the folks that want to serve God now, very bad for those that don't. As we have said, if you're a Christian, this is as bad as it's ever going to get right now. If you're an unbeliever, this is as good as it's ever going to get. So you better enjoy it. As one pastor said, I tell unbelievers who don't want to accept Christ, then you know what? You had better enjoy this life. In fact, you better enjoy it like you take an orange, cut it in half, and suck every drop of sweetness out of that orange because your life is like that orange, and when it's over, it is over. All the sweetness is gone, and you're going to have nothing but an eternity of separation from God. And so what I said to first service, I'll say to you, and since I know a lot of you folks are already serving the Lord, God bless you. Maybe this is something you can challenge people you witness to with. Maybe there are some here this morning who have not accepted Jesus. This is for you. But for those that know him, when you witness to people, you can challenge people you're witnessing to with this idea. Is you kind of present that truth. Say to them, you know, why don't you fall on the ground now and die to yourself? And give yourself to Jesus. And start using your life to sow into the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Why are you holding back? I mean, is this few years on the earth worth your eternity? Jesus said, you know, what if you could gain the whole world but lost your own soul? Well, what is worth giving up your eternal soul for? Nothing on this earth, right? We need to tell people, look, if you start sowing a life of obedience to God now, you'll reap blessings in heaven forever. But the choice is yours. The stakes are high. I pray you make the right decision, right? Because joy is tied to that decision, but so much more. Now, guys, that really concludes our series, A Journey in Joy through the book of Philippians. However, let me bring this full circle, and let me end the way we started, because it was 20 lessons ago, and maybe you forgot some of this. Let me remind you, Okay. The epistle to the Philippians is one of four epistles that Paul wrote from prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. They're called the prison epistles. Okay, prison epistles. Um, he wrote those from prison in Rome. You see, Paul was accused by his enemies of inciting riots and leading insurrections throughout the Roman Empire. That charge was false, but 
eventually Paul was arrested and he was brought to Rome where he spent two years in prison waiting to stand before Caesar to present his case, a trial that could very well have ended in his execution. And yet the theme of this epistle is joy in the Lord. If you don't understand the background, you're not going to appreciate the theme. He wrote this from prison. The epistle of joy. When he could have been facing an ex his execution. In fact, many have called Philippians the epistle of joy because Paul uses the word joy and rejoice over a dozen times in the four chapters that make up this epistle. How was it that Paul could have could have so much could have so much joy while in such a terrible place with his very life on the line. Well, Paul's secret was he had learned to fill his mind with Jesus. Now, we are famous as Christians for throwing out little platitudes and moving on. And I don't want to do that. I want to explain what I'm talking about because this is the secret to the way Paul lived his life. Fill your mind with Jesus. Okay, let's go out and let's get some lunch. No, we got to talk about some of this stuff, right? And I can just see that in some Christian bookstore uh, etched on a little piece of driftwood and mounted on a little... <laughs> fill your mind with Jesus. You know, these things don't help us oftentimes. So let me try to help you. Paul learned to fill his mind with Jesus. We see this clearly in the first chapter of Philippians alone where Paul uses the word Christ and Jesus Christ 17 times. First chapter which figures out to more than once every two verses. Think about that. And so even though Paul talks about joy quite a bit in this epistle, he talks about Jesus much more. And that was the reason he had so much joy in the midst of his difficult circumstances. He cultivated a heart, listen, he cultivated a heart that didn't focus on the problem, it focused on the person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. One author said this, and I quote, how much, how much Christians need to learn this? There is so much bickering in, the, in Christian circles, so much complaining, so much unhappiness. This was never meant to be. Christians were meant to be filled with love and joy and peace, in short, with all the virtues that are the result of the life of Christ within the Christian. But to be filled with Christ, to be filled with Christ, is the secret to, of, of real Christian living. It is the secret of true joy, end quote. Look, when we started this series, we said that when we were born again, we accepted Christ as our Savior, we were made partakers of God's divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4, we accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit moved in, and as such now, we were made partakers of God's divine nature, which meant we now had access to everything in the way of attributes that are of God, we had access to. The world can, can uh, uh, counterfeit some of the riches of God, love, joy, peace. They're cheap counterfeits, often chemically induced. But only a true child of God with the Spirit of God living inside of them has access to God's attributes, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 3. Those fruits of the Spirit are really the attributes of God. The world does not have access to those things. We do. We do. But I want you to understand something. Just because we have been given the attributes of God doesn't mean they can't be taken from us. Jesus warned us about this in John 15, verse 11. Turn there, please. 
Now we've already covered this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. Let me just make my point and we'll, we'll close. But Jesus said to his disciples the night before the cross, John 15, verse 11, after he gave them one final discourse, he said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. I want you to notice carefully what he said, how he worded this. I have spoken this to you that my joy may, may remain in you. Implying it's not a given. Look, the Lord Jesus Christ is saying that his joy, once planted in the heart of a believer at salvation, won't automatically remain in their heart. It can be driven out. It can be stolen from them. The devil is a thief. He's a thief. How does that happen? Where, where the treasures of God that he has filled our heart, how can they be stolen from us? Well, this is what takes us back to Philippians, but stay in John 15. Because in Philippians, Paul says there are four things that will steal our joy if we let it. If we let it. Circumstances, people, selfishness, and worry. Now, I'm not going to get into these. We don't have time. You can go through and listen to our Philippians study because we talked about this. Circumstances, people, selfishness, and worry will steal our joy. Do we have anything that can guard against these, the enemy stealing God's joy from us? Well, Jesus gave us the answer in John 15. And this wouldn't just apply to joy, but all the attributes of God, right? What is the antidote to these joy stealers? Well, he told us in John 15. Look at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the what? Vine dresser. Verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Let me stop there. Again, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit that Paul lists in Galatians 5 is joy. That's the one we're keying in on, right? Notice what he says in verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me, the Greek word means to continue, stay, remain, uh, be in communion with. If you, I'll just paraphrase, if you remain in communion with me, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be, or in other words, so you will prove to be my disciples. Look at verse 11 again. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Did you notice that Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you? This is a conditional promise. So many times in the, in the word, God gives to us conditional promises. We have a part and he has a part. Now, some of them are unconditional. We have no part. Receive Jesus, everything's been done. He paid the price, he did the work, he hung on the cross, he rose from the dead, he did it all. So come to Jesus and be saved. That's an unconditional promise. I don't have a part in it. I don't have to do anything to receive salvation, just believe. But then, after we're saved, God gives us many great and precious promises. Some of them are conditional. Where I have a part to fulfill, and if I fulfill my part, then God will do what he's promised to do. But he said, if you abide me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. Or in other words, you will have much joy. If joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, we could say that. 
you will have much joy and your joy would remain. Guys, abiding in the word, filling your mind with the word, the word of God, and allowing it to transform your thinking about circumstances, people, self, and worry, the joy stealers, is the key to Jesus' joy remaining in us and overflowing our lives. That, in a nutshell, was the secret to Paul's ability to have joy while in prison, with the possibility of his execution hanging over his head, he learned to fill his mind with Jesus. In fact, Paul uses the word mind ten times, thinking five times, and remember sixteen times in Philippians, the epistle of joy. Remember what we said when we started this series? So much of our Christian life is won or lost by the way we think. Thinking, or what dominates our minds, is where most spiritual warfare takes place. I know that people think of spiritual warfare as demon possession, casting out demons. That's part of it. That's a small part of it. Spiritual warfare takes place every single day of your life for control of your thinking. As a man or a woman thinks in his heart, so, so is he, so is she. Satan knows if he can get you to think a certain way, he can control you. And that's what we have to fill. All our lives we were brainwashed by the devil. He fed our brains. He fed our minds. All kinds of things. And we based our life on those things. Material things would make us happy. Uh, this or that would, would be the fulfillment of a life of joy. That kind of thing. These were all lies. And once we got saved, as Paul said in Romans 12, verse 2, don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking, but now be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It all goes back to how you think. Whoever controls your thinking controls you. That's the heart of spiritual warfare. And that's why we need to reprogram our minds with the word of God after we've gotten saved. We have to stay a Christian who is not in the Word of God faithfully is a defeated Christian. Mark it down. Mark it down. The secret to Christian joy is found in your mind, in how you think about life, how you approach life. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4 as we bring this to a close. I mean, you know it, but I, I need to bring it out. Because every time I think of this subject, I think of this passage. 2 Corinthians 4, let's read verses 16 to 18. Where Paul said, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we don't focus our attention on the things of this world, you know, uh, visible things, material things. We've been given a new perspective. We've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. We have, a, we have a new perspective. We have a new mindset. And somebody has said, your uplook will determine your outlook. Didn't Paul say, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth? Your uplook will determine your outlook. How you approach this life is going to be determined by how much you keep your eyes on heaven and on the eternal. When a lot of folks, if we had a church building with a marquee out in front, and I put out there, how to be joyful, our study in Philippians, right? We'd get a, we would get so many people in, this, in our church who want joy, but they would define it 
is how I can have joy right now. How I can have my, ready for it, best life now. Good heavens, I hope this is not my best life. I'm waiting for heaven. I hope that's a lot better than this. But people, when they think of joy, they want an earthly joy, which means material blessings, success in my business, whatever it might be. Guys, we need to cultivate an eternal perspective of life. You want joy, that's it. If you came here looking for some deep, profound insight, you're not going to get it. I'm not that deep, and I don't talk that profoundly. But I do take the simple things of God, and, and, and they're the basics. And I try to focus on the basics. Let me have you turn to one last scripture. We'll close. 1 Corinthians 7. I came across this one. I forgot I had read it comes through even more powerfully in the NLT, so I'll read it out of that. But I thought, oh my goodness, Lord, not only is this a perfect verse to end our series with, it's a perfect verse for the day in which we're living. A great exhortation. I'll read it to you and we'll close. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 to 31. But let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. Jesus is coming back soon. The time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Those who weep or those who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping. Don't let any earthly sorrow take your eyes off of the eternal. Or joy. Whatever you have that you're happy about. Uh, great. You, you finish your degree, you got your college, great. Or this or that, or you finally got your boat. You, maybe you haven't heard the two happiest days in a man's life. The day he buys his boat, the day he sells his boat. <laughs> but you know, we think all these things are going to make us happy. But some of those things are not wrong. You want to buy a boat, buy a boat. If you can afford it, and God blesses you with a boat, I'm happy for you. But don't let any earthly sorrow or earthly blessing keep, get your eyes off of Jesus. The time that's left, guys, is very short. Verse 31. Those who use this world, the things of this world, should not become attached to them. For this world as we know it will soon pass away. And then how many of us are going to be kicking ourselves in heaven going why did I want that stupid boat? Like Schindler's List, this ring. I could have saved 20 more with this ring or wherever. How many people could I have reached with the gospel for the price of that stupid boat? Not evil. Not the best choice, though, with regard to the eternal. Amen? Amen. Pray for our next study, okay? Father, we thank you for blessing our studies in this book. I pray, Lord, that we will remember what joy is all about and what brings us joy and it's not earthly pleasures and lord we just pray that you will continue blessing the next study in your word that you will lead us into which we pray will start next sunday we thank you lord we ask all this in jesus precious name amen